Guys, this morning we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians. Uh, If you are jumping in here midstream, we're in Colossians 3 this morning. We're going to finish out the third chapter of Colossians. Uh, Colossians 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read those verses now uh, from the English Standard Version Bible. It says, beginning at verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And we'll stop right there for this morning. Now, our text for this morning, which I just read, contains some language that may land on our ears in a way that demands further explanation. For example, isn't that sentence I led out with a little jarring in our culture today? Wives, submit to your husbands. What does God mean exactly when he calls husbands to headship and wives to submission in Christian marriages? Good question. Then there's the potentially uncomfortable fact that according to the language contained in these verses, the practice of slavery was accepted within the early church. My version uses the word bond servant, but that word is doulos, which is slave in the original Greek. Paul instructs in these verses Christian slaves to obey their masters in everything. And rather than telling Christian slave owners to free their slaves, he tells them to treat them justly and fairly. Now those are some potentially very thorny, difficult subjects, and I'm not going to talk about them at all this morning. (laughs) However... Lest you think I'm a coward, we're not running from those topics. Uh, If you'd like to explore those questions deeper, we've actually spoken about these things very directly in the past. Uh, If you go to the church's website, stateroadchurch.com, and you go back through the archived sermons, I direct you to a sermon um, from February 16th, 2020. Again, that's February 16th, 2020. The sermon title was Looking Outward in the Same Direction. And that, in that sermon there, we did speak about the issue of headship and submission. I invite you to go look at that. Or on February 27th of 2022, I preached a sermon called The Issue of Slavery in Philemon. Again, that's February 27th, 2022. Invite you to go give those a listen. But if you're a visual person, also let me know. I could send you the manuscripts from those Sunday mornings. We'd be happy to get that in your hands. 
not trying to sidestep those kind of thorny issues, I'm just calling out the elephant in the room because <laughs> I know that that's there in the minds of some of us. And it really does demand more explanation and careful unpacking to get to the heart of the matter there. But what I wanted to do this morning is a little different with these verses. We've talked about those other things on other mornings. But in these verses, Paul gives instructions for how Christians should conduct themselves in various relationships. He speaks to wives and husbands, children and parents. He spends the bulk of his words addressing the relationship between masters and slaves. Or we might translate that into our own culture today as workplace relationships, uh, employees and employers. And all that's very interesting in light of Philemon, which is kind of a companion letter to the book of Colossians, which is written to a slave owner, Philemon, about or on behalf of his runaway slave, Onesimus. Uh, that's a very interesting short little letter in the New Testament. And so Paul is really devoting a lot of attention here in Colossians to the issue of the relationship between a Philemon and an Onesimus. However, rather than devoting time to each of these relationships this morning, um, specifically, I want to focus on the bigger principles that are at play in what Paul is saying to all of these relationships. Paul seems to be saying that certain things should govern our relationships when we become followers of Jesus, and I want to spend time looking at that. Uh, so this morning, you may not be a slave owner or a slave. In fact, you may not be employed. You may not be employing anyone. You may have neither spouse, nor children, nor living parents. But none of that matters particularly this morning. There are some broad principles that Paul introduces into the midst of these various relationships that should govern all of our relationships as followers of Jesus. And that's what I want to spend time on this morning. The first principle is this, we will love people best when we love God most. I think this is something that we see, something, we see in these verses in spades. You're going to love people best when you love God most. Uh, Luke 14, 26 says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, something I always feel necessary to point out when I quote this particular verse is that, because he uses such strong language here, he says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate <laughs> the, these people in your life. I don't believe that he's trying to make us look upon our family relationships less. He's trying to elevate in our minds something else that's even higher than that. He's not trying to call upon you to love your wife or your parents or your children less than you do. He's just trying to elevate in our mind, in our thinking, that there is something higher. And when we love that thing most, we will serve all those other relationships better. I think about this in my own marriage. Uh, I think I'm an okay husband, but I would make a terrible God. Terrible. And Sarah, she's a great wife, but she would make a terrible God. 
And so when I look at my marriage relationship, so much of what I lean into and place my hope upon is the fact that my wife, Sarah, loves God most in her life. And because that's true, I feel a great deal of comfort, even in the midst of my failings, uh, because I know that ultimately, the commitments that she has made, she's made to him and not to me. And so if I fail, well, she's still in love with her God and will still continue to serve me out of her love for God, even when I'm unlovable. Uh, She, for me, is just a great example in my life of someone who loves me best because she loves her God most. And this is true in all of our relationships, guys. This is true in the church, in our friendships, in our work environments. Uh, There are many times, many ways in which we will fail one another. But if we're motivated by a love for God, then we're still going to continue to serve people well, even when they are disappointing. There is a way to love people that is idolatrous. And that competes with God for space in our heart. There is a way of loving your spouse or your children or your parents or your job or your friends or even your solitude that can be idolatrous. But when we become Christians, God does not usually remove and replace these things in our lives, but rather he makes us new in the midst of these relationships as we submit our will to his. We become a new kind of spouse, child, parent, coworker, friend. You become a new kind of citizen, a new driver, a new coworker. Rather than removing or replacing these relationships, God transforms and redeems them in our lives. This is the way he operates. I think I could point to a lot of verses that illustrate this truth, but just look at 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 24, for example. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He said, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has, was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord, Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. A lot of times we become Christians, and you're many things before and after you put your trust in Jesus for salvation. And God, in coming along doesn't often remove and replace those relationships. What he does is he redeems and transforms them. He makes you a different sort of person in the midst of that relationship than you were before. So we were all citizens, co-workers, sons, daughters, moms, dads, sweethearts, neighbors, drivers, vacationers, customers, and students. And in becoming Christians, we continue being these things, but something has changed that has dramatically altered who we are and what we value and how we operate within those different relationships. And an important principle to keep in mind is what I started with, that you will love people in your life best when you love God most. 
And this leads to the next big overarching principle that binds these verses together, which is that we should be neither a self-pleaser nor a people-pleaser in the midst of our relationships. Paul points us in these verses not only to a better, more excellent way for Christians to live in relationships together, but he also shows us what lies at the root of so much disorder in human relationships. Relationships among Christians, or even the way Christians relate to the non-believing people in their lives, should look different than what we see in the surrounding culture. We should be different, not in a prideful way, but in a visible way, in an earnest way, a sincere way. Jesus said, don't hide your light. Nobody Ties their light under a bushel, but puts it on a stand so that it may provide light for all in the house. Jesus in us is meant to be visible and lived out. And very often that will find its primary manifestation in the way we relate to others in our lives. We operate within our relationships not only differently than we used to since becoming a follower of Jesus, but differently than the world does. As we set our mind on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth, and as we put on the new self and put off the old, and here, if you haven't been with us throughout our Colossians series, this is the language Paul has used up to this point in the book of Colossians to talk about how we become, go deeper as a follower of Jesus, setting our minds on the things that are above, putting on the new self. And as we do that, we will begin to take our, how we live in relationship with other people will begin to take on a different quality than we typically find in the world. Remember, remember, so far in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he has not really been arguing for the gospel per se, but rather he is arguing for things in light of the gospel that the Colossians agree with him about. Gospel is a word I just kind of throw out there as though we all understand its meaning. And maybe not everyone does, but the gospel is a transliteration from uh, the Bible that means good news. That's just what gospel means. It means good news. And the good news that we celebrate as Christians is that Jesus has taken care of our sin problem. Uh, Last night we were doing the cornhole tournament, and... um, In that famous verse in the Bible where it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the word for sin is actually a term for archery in Greece, which is that you miss the mark. So when I threw the cornhole, as I did many times last night, and it landed not even on the board, I missed the mark. That's what happened. And it says here, for all have missed the mark and have fallen short of the glory of God. In our lives, in our best efforts, none of us have lived the life that we should live. Every single last one of you in this room is a sinner. All of us. Nobody has anything to brag about or stand upon. None of us have any resume of works by which we can go to God and say, See, you owe me something good because I'm good. We are all desperately wicked, we're all sinners. Even our righteousness, the Bible says, is like, is like filthy rags. We have nothing, nothing to stand upon. 
And the bad thing about that is that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. And what we've earned, that's what a wage is, is punishment, wrath. It's coming for sure. He's a righteous judge. And wickedness must be punished. Now, that's the bad news. You're all sinners. You all must be punished. That's bad news. But then comes the good news. The good news of the gospel. That he who never sinned, he who never earned a wage of death, died. He paid the penalty for you on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus went to the cross and he died there the death that we all so richly earned and deserved. And do you know what's given to you in exchange in this amazing transaction? All the righteousness of Jesus, all of his reward is transferred to your account. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing truth. Guys, there is no other religion like this. And I don't say that hyperbolically. That is an observable fact. Go look at any other religion. And I promise you at the center of that faith tradition, there will not be grace. Go to Islam, go to Judaism, go to Hinduism, go to any of the isms, and ask, how does man earn favor with God? And they'll give you a list. Here are the boxes you check. Here are the hoops you jump through. And at the end of it all, you will have shown yourself to be rare and excellent sort of human being. God will owe you. Christianity is completely different than that. Christianity says, you're a sinner, you've blown it, You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but Jesus did everything that's necessary in order that you might know salvation. Now go become like him. All of a Christian's motivation in embracing righteousness in the more excellent way is not motivated by fear that if we don't, we'll be visited with wrath. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment, says the Bible. And punishment has been taken off the table if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation this morning. Jesus took all the punishment on the cross. And now you're free to follow him because you love who he is. You want to be like the God who saved you. You see, when a Christian obeys the word of God... It is one of the very important ways that we have of saying to God, I love who you are. I love who you are. And I want to be like you. So fellow Christian, that is good news. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the good news. And Paul, in in sending this letter to the Colossians, he's not arguing for them to embrace those truths. He is saying that in light of those truths, the way they live should be markedly different. That's his argument in Colossians. With the help of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is a truth to be lived in the everyday of our lives. 
And in these verses we're studying together this morning, Paul is arguing for believers to live the gospel in the midst of their relationships. Or to put it another way, to make the gospel visible in the midst of their relationships. And Paul is confronting two dark impulses in the human heart that run completely contrary to the gospel. And these things tend to govern the motivations of fallen humanity in their relationships with other people. Because of the fall, people tend to be motivated by a desire to please themselves or to please other people in their relationships with others. But Paul forcefully and repetitively points the Colossians to a third option. Don't live in service to yourself. Don't live your life in service to other people even. Rather than being a self-pleaser or a people-pleaser, be a God-pleaser. Make this the center around which your life orbits, God. We encounter these people in the Bible quite often. Who, their lives are stained with this motivation to please themselves and please others. Oftentimes, it's kind of mixed and mingled. John 12, 42 through 43, for example, gives us this example. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, that's Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you see what's going on there? What's motivating them in their silence? They are people pleasers. They have put human beings in the place of a God. And they live to honor people and to get from them their attaboys rather than living in service to God. Or we might look to Jesus' description of certain people in Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Nothing's wrong with praying, of course. Nothing's wrong with praying in public. But these guys were praying to be seen by others. He's addressing a heart motivation that the very center of their lives was being seen by others a certain way. They were people pleasers and self pleasers. But into this culture, permeated throughout by the impulse to do and not to do for the approval of a human audience, and a tendency to look upon people as useful things to be exploited for your own pleasure, Paul speaks words like this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, in other words, don't just do it when people are looking like a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. By my count, six times, Paul points the Colossians to the one whom they should please. Don't fit in with the culture, culture, but operate as is fitting in the Lord. Don't live to please man, but be pleasing to the Lord. Don't fear man, fear God. Don't look to man for your reward, but to God in whom you have an inheritance. Your earthly status is deceptive and temporary. There is a day where a great reversal of fortunes is coming. So don't serve man, serve the Lord. There is a master in heaven in whom there is no partiality whatsoever. And this broken order of things that we live in, that honors distinctions between human beings, that God does not give a fig about those things. There is no partiality in him whatsoever. I love to think that there is a coming day when Herod the Great air quotes surrounding the great, if you're listening on the radio. (laughs) There is a coming day when Herod the great will tremble before a righteous judge in whom there is no partiality. It won't matter that he was in the palace and the babies he murdered were in Bethlehem. There is no partiality. There is no respect for his attainments or his titles. And there's none for yours. There is a God, there is a judge, there is a master, and there is a right way to live that puts him at the center. And there is so much disorder that follows if we put other things at the center. Uh, In my own personal devotional times, I've been going for walks in the morning and memorizing uh, scriptures. And the scripture I'm memorizing right now is from the very end of James chapter 3 through the beginning of James chapter 4. And so those words were in my mind as I was preparing our message this morning, and the Lord showed me something one morning, a great overlap of this passage that we're studying in Colossians with the passage I'm memorizing in James chapter 3. Speaking about these two dark impulses, the impulse to please ourselves and the impulse to make other people like a God in our lives. He says this to James, in James, beginning at verse 14, chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What I want you to see here is that the things that Paul identifies as these toxins in the human heart that give birth to disorder and every vile practice... He identifies as jealousy and selfish ambition. Jealousy 
is a heart focused on other people. And selfish ambition is a heart focused on pleasing yourself. And he says, when these things form the center of our motivations, what follows is disorder. Every vile practice, profound wickedness. And then he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. What does that mean, pure? Well, it means the absence of those other two things. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. That selfish ambition, that bitter jealousy is absent from your motivations. He's calling people to live in a way that's motivated by a desire to please God. It's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That is a description of what every Facebook common thread is not. Isn't that true? Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Go to your Facebook comment thread and you see disorder and every vile practice that springs from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It must be different here among us. Guys, there is a more excellent way. And you want to find a church family that has lost its way. It is a church family that has ceased to put God at the center of our motivations. I rejoice that it's not much in evidence here. Guys, that's my sincere feel. I just love being among you, God's people. And I do find those things here, the good things. But these things need to be spoken out loud into the midst that we can guard against them. In these verses, James identifies these two toxic motivations that guide fallen humanity in their relationships, and he repeats them twice. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, people-pleasers and self-pleasers. These lead to boasting, being false to the truth, disorder, and every vile practice. By contrast, in verse 18, we're told that true wisdom will bring forth a harvest of righteousness. A false worldly wisdom will promote vile practices, whereas the fruit of wisdom from above will be a harvest of righteousness. And do you know who taught us the opposite of these things? Well, it's Jesus in the gospel. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 tells us about Jesus, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. They don't have to be better than yourselves, you're just to consider them better. <laughs> Not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Guys, you are charged as followers of Jesus with nothing less than living out in your relationships Jesus in the gospel, the one who came and made himself less and served others, not because you are at the center of his life, but because God is. Jesus came to bring humility back to earth, to make us partakers of it, and by it to save us. And so the lives of Christians must bear this stamp of deliverance from sin. Our whole relationship to both God and man must be marked by an all-pervading humility. Those are the words of Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, and I love those words. Guys, let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, you have certainly showed us some challenging things here this morning. And God, I'll be the first to confess before you, God, that I'm a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. God, my inner world of motivations is still much stained by a desire to please myself and, God, by a high concern for what people think. But God, I know that there is a more excellent way, and you have opened our eyes to see it this morning a little bit. Grow this within us, God, I pray. And God, I pray that as we live together in relationship here at State Road, God, that you would help us to make you visible. Help us to walk together in the light of your word as an honest reflection of Jesus. Jesus, who came not to please himself, but to please the Father. God, help us in our world of motivations within. Transform us by your truth. Help us, God, to set our minds on the things that are above, not on things that are the earth, and to put off the old man and put on the new. And Father, I pray that a harvest of righteousness would be sown in peace here at State Road by those who make peace, and that many would be drawn into the good news of the gospel as we live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.